The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. This episode contains descriptions of abuse, violence, and cruelty against both children and animals. The content may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Before I uh, even realized it, I mean, I uh, just... Pointed it out of the fire. How many times did you fire? Just once. He he spun and fell over. You walk by to the door and you see this woman. Why? Um, explain to me why you shot at her. I was scared. I was. I mean, I didn't know what was gonna happen to me. You know, I was panicking. of 2005, Levi King went on a rampage that left five people dead in two different states. A 10-year-old girl was the sole survivor of his second attack that left her entire family dead as they slept in their beds. How the little girl survived and the actions she took to remain safe is short of a miracle. What kind of childhood and life circumstances turns a young boy into an unstable and dangerous man? And is there more that comes into play when forming such a deadly and calculated mind? Join me now. As we look back into the background of Levi King, the unsuspecting and random victims he murdered, along with how a resilient little girl chose not to let the terror and loss of that fateful night determine how she lives her life today. This is a case that delves deep into many horrible topics such as extreme child and animal abuse. While we want to give you a complete picture of Levi King's upbringing, we also want to be cautious with those of our listeners who may be sensitive to these topics. Listener discretion is advised. On the early morning of September 13th, 2005, at 4.16 a.m., a stranger forced his way into the home of the Conrad family. The stranger in the night was a young man named Levi King. The family of four, 
including parents Michelle and Brian, along with their daughter Robin and son Zach, had gone to bed and felt safe in their remote farmhouse. They lived what appeared to be an idyllic life in the countryside of Pampa, Texas. Pampa, a relatively small city in Gray County, Texas, had a population of around 18,000 people. But as Brad and Michelle Conrad slept soundly in their beds, someone they had never met was about to make an uninvited entry. As Levi King entered the Conrad home, he immediately entered Michelle and Brian's bedroom, which was located near the rear entrance of the home. Michelle, who was six months pregnant, had heard the disturbance and sprang up to see what it was, only to find herself faced by the silhouette of a man standing in their bedroom door. Before Michelle could say or do anything, Levi shot her six times. As he shot Michelle, her husband Brian awoke and was also immediately shot three times. Robin, who was only 10 years old at the time, had been having a nightmare when she began to hear what sounded like gunshots in her dream. The horror of discovering it wasn't only a dream, but really happening, suddenly dawned on her as she began to hear her mother's terrifying screams among the gunshot blasts from down the hall. The home was dark, and young Robin's nightmare was quickly becoming a terrifying reality. As the scared little girl heard her mother screaming and the gunshot blasts, she jumped out of her bed so that she could peer into the hallway even as frightened as she was. She was so petrified to see who or what was coming for her. As she carefully peered into the hallway, she caught a glimpse of a man in the shadows coming down the hall towards Robin. She quickly took two big leaps, diving back into her bed. As Robin landed back in bed, Levi fired two rounds. One bullet was so close that Robin could feel it grace her leg. The second bullet ended up hitting her small bedside table. Amazingly, Robin had the presence of mind to pretend that she was dead, so Levi King moved on to the next bedroom, where her brother Zach was sleeping. Robin then heard two more gunshots, and what she thought sounded like a groan from her brother. What Robin didn't realize was that all of her family were now deceased. Under the assumption that he had successfully murdered the entire Conrad family, Levi began to walk around the house searching for anything that he could find of some value. He opened cupboards and randomly looked through the family's mail. He later reported that he wanted to get a sense of who the people were that he had just murdered. 
he looked at himself in the mirror, hoping to find that inner peace he'd felt less than 24 hours earlier when he had killed two other random strangers in another state. But he felt... nothing. Levi then shot the family dog twice and got back into the pickup truck he had stolen the day before and started heading for Mexico. He was aware that his reckless and violent actions would soon catch up with him. After Levi left the Conrad home, Robin laid completely still, playing dead for an excruciating two hours. Still terrified, Robin got out of her bed and made a desperate 911 call for help. Sheriff's office, 911. Ma'am, uh-huh. there was a shootout in my house. Um, I don't know who's alive in my house, and I'm scared. Where are you at? Um, 7142 Highway 70. It's about 13.3 miles out from the bowling alley. What's your name? Robin Doe, my parents, um, Joe Conrad and Brian Conrad. I'm scared of this and I don't know what Robin to do. Robin Downs? Yes, ma'am. Brian Conrad. I'm Okay, I'll stay on with you. I've got the ambulance and the fire department to come to, okay? Thank you so much. You're coming. <laughs> Right there. You don't see any other vehicles or strange people around your home or anything? No, ma'am. You didn't see a car drive off of any kind? No, ma'am. You just heard the shots fired? And I heard, I saw the lights on in the kitchen, so I'm assuming they stole some stuff. Okay, okay. I can't believe it. Okay, okay, okay. And all I want right now is my blanket and my pillow. I'm scared. I know you are. I'm scared. I know. I know. Just stay right there. Okay, there. I hear more sirens. Yes, they're coming. I've got the ambulance in the car coming for you. Okay? I know you do. I know. There? Yeah, I see another police car. Okay, that's Dennis. That's Dennis Elliott that's going to be there with you, okay? Okay. As police made the long drive to the Conrads, Robin waited at the end of her driveway for what felt like an eternity. When they finally arrived, Robin flew into the arms of the first officer on the scene. Fearful to ask if any of her family was still alive in the house, Robin calmly asked the officer to help her feed the animals. The officer couldn't help but note how poised she was and able to divert her attention to something else. But once the chores were complete and they returned back to the house, she had to ask, Is anyone still alive? 
know she was told. No one was alive. Robin was then taken to the home of her great-grandmother and was eventually questioned by police. One thing that struck the police was that Robin was able to say, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that there were 15 shots fired. And sure enough, as police searched the Conrad home, they located 15 shell casings. They found blood at the scene, along with tire tracks and other evidence, but no fingerprints and no motive. No reason whatsoever for what seemed like a calculated slaughter of almost an entire family. Police speculated that it was perhaps a drug deal that had gone horribly wrong and that maybe the perpetrator had gone to the wrong address. They didn't believe it was a robbery because nothing was actually taken. No one could figure out why this would happen to a family described as salt of the earth and appeared to be the all-American family. Levi King was only 23 years old when he decided to go on a killing spree that brutally stole the lives of five complete strangers. A rampage fueled by the desire to feel at peace with his own inner demons. But where had it all begun? At 20 years old, Levi King committed his first crime that would land him in prison with a 14-year sentence. He burglarized the home of a neighbor and then attempted to burn it down. Surprisingly, he only served 17 months of the 14-year sentence and then was sent to a halfway house. But after a short time being at the halfway house, he managed to escape. Levi actually had no real mastermind plan behind his escape. While he was out on work detail, he just decided not to return back to the facility. He had become a fugitive from the law. Once he left, he managed to hitchhike his way to his father's home back in Pineville, Missouri. It didn't take too long after his arrival for the two of them to start arguing. Scott, Levi's father, then kicked him out and told him he didn't want him around. The same father who had been known to cover for Levi and his other siblings whenever they got into trouble with the law. But Levi waited for his father to leave and then he snuck back into their dilapidated home, upon which he stole his dad's AK-47 assault rifle and a hunting knife. As he walked down the street, he spotted his first victims, Orly McCool and his daughter-in-law, Dawn. He noticed the two were in the midst of leaving their residence, so he decided to wait until they had left to approach the home. (music) 
Levi forced his way into the house and began to look for keys for the pickup truck he noticed parked outside, along with anything else of value. Sadly, Orly and Don returned home while Levi was still rummaging through the house. As they entered, Levi hid behind a door, waiting for the two of them to come back inside. He admitted later that he wasn't quite sure what to do, but got scared. Don had entered the home first and immediately went downstairs into the basement. As Orly entered the house, he was suddenly shot in the chest. At the same time, Don heard the commotion and headed upstairs where she was met by Levi. Don made an attempt to take shelter from the gunshots, but was trapped. After shooting Don, Levi grabbed the keys to their pickup truck and hopped inside. Rather than tear off down the road, like you'd expect any criminal to do after committing a heinous crime, Levi took pause and just sat for a moment. He felt an unusual comfort in the lives he had just senselessly stolen. He later stated he had never felt so at peace in his entire life. Levi then began to drive. He didn't really have a clear sense of where he was headed, but knew he needed to get out of Missouri. He was a fugitive on the run, and now a murderer. He drove for hours and hours, and it didn't take long for the peace he had felt earlier to disappear. He tried pulling over to the side of the road to sleep, but he was overcome by the need to feel that peace again. He needed to kill again. After driving for nearly 13 hours, Levi just couldn't settle down. He was now in Texas, and at some point, he decided he needed to find another home to terrorize. He remembered passing a farmhouse a short way back and decided that was where he needed to go next. He turned the pickup around and headed to the home located in a remote area of Pampa, Texas. As the tragedy in Pampa was about to unfold, Matthew McCool, the son of Don who had been killed earlier with her father-in-law, received a telephone call from another family member who'd been trying to reach his mother but was unable to. Matthew also tried contacting his mother and didn't get an answer. At first, this didn't terribly alarm Matthew, but when his lunchtime came around that day, he decided to make a drive out to the house to check on things. When he arrived at the home, he saw his family members standing outside. Next, he heard the devastating news. The kind of news you can never prepare yourself for. His mother and his grandfather had been murdered. Matthew felt as though he'd lost everyone and his own father had just recently passed away as well. Who could do such a thing, and why? 
As investigators began combing the house for evidence, an officer noticed that the shell casings were of a very particular brand. As officers were looking at the casings, another officer noted they had just taken a report of a robbery by Scott King, Levi's father. He had reported earlier that his son had broken into his home and stole a gun and ammunition. After piecing the two crimes together, police had their suspect. The manhunt for Levi King was on. Police believed Levi targeted the McCools due to their close proximity to his father's house and also because of the Dodge pickup in their driveway. Levi needed transportation. He made it all the way to the Mexican border and attempted to cross but was stopped by Border Patrol who asked if there was anything in the truck. Levi admitted to having a gun, which drew their attention. After running the license plate number, they discovered that the truck had been reported stolen with a possible suspect inside. Levi was detained on the spot and questioned by El Paso police. Just 15 minutes into the interview, Levi calmly admitted to murdering both Orly and Don McCool. When questioned why, he really didn't have an answer. He just stated that before he even realized it, he had pointed the gun and fired. Shortly after the interview, the McDonald County Sheriff arrived to transport Levi back to Missouri to face his crime there. When Sheriff Don Ruby arrived and saw Levi, he knew right away who he was. Levi also knew and acknowledged him too. During the car ride back to Missouri, Levi told the sheriff he could still smell the gunpowder, sweat, and blood. He said it was a feeling unlike any other drug he'd ever experienced. About two weeks later, Sheriff Ruby was told by detention officers that Levi had requested to speak with him again. The sheriff went and got Levi out of his cell and took him to the outdoor exercise yard. Within several minutes of the conversation, Levi looked at the sheriff and confessed, you know there's four more in Texas. Sheriff Ruby didn't know whether to believe him or not. After all, he had been in their jail for nearly two weeks and no one was looking for him. Why would he make such a claim? Levi continued talking and began to describe the location and mentioned a big white cross. The sheriff knew right away the location he was describing. Sheriff Ruby then reached out to investigators near where the cross was located in the Texas Panhandle to see if there were any other homicides reported. And there was. There was the murder of nearly an entire family with no clues as to who could have done it. The Gray County District Attorney couldn't believe it when they got the call from the sheriff's office in Pineville, Missouri. It blew the case wide open for the Pampa murders. They finally found out that after murdering the McCools in Missouri, Levi then had driven through Oklahoma on Interstate 40, deciding at some point to exit the interstate. It was at that point he had spotted the Conrad Farmhouse. Former Gray County DA Lynn Schweitzer decided she wanted to push for the death penalty. 
if there was ever a case where a man deserved to die, it was Levi King, she said. But before he could face his charges in Texas, he would have to face the justice system in Missouri. Levi King decided to take a plea bargain for the McCool murders. In order to avoid execution, he agreed to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. In the Conrad family murders, he also took a guilty plea bargain. However, the district attorney there refused to take the death penalty off the table, which meant that young Robin would have to come face-to-face -face with the man who brutally took her entire family from her. But Robin knew it was something she needed to do for her family, so she agreed. Four long years after the murder of Robin's family, Levi was extradited to Texas to face his sentencing. During the trial, Robin remembers trying her best to avoid eye contact with Levi. When it finally came time for her to testify, she couldn't resist the urge any longer. She wanted to see the person who had robbed her of her precious family. She recalls him looking back at her with a stare that gave her the worst feeling in her life. She said he was very cold, blank, and essentially, it felt like he was staring a hole right through her. Jurors came back with a deliberation to sentence Levi to life in prison without the possibility of parole. There was only one juror that decided they couldn't vote for the death penalty. The Gray County DA was devastated, thinking she'd let Robin down. Robin didn't feel that way. She felt she'd still won for her family. Levi's defense attorney, Joe Marr Wilson, stated that with death penalty cases, the last thing you want is for a jury to be stuck with a picture of the perpetrator as a killing entity or an evil entity. They had to find a way to turn Levi from being a monster into a human being. But Levi King had heartlessly taken five people from countless people who would be impacted for a lifetime. It's difficult to see such a person as a human being until you begin to realize that this person was once a baby, a child, a young adult that someone had the responsibility to care for and raise.
We wanted to go back into Levi's childhood and life experiences to see if there could have possibly been anything that happened to him growing up that could have created the young man he had turned into and how much of his genetics came into play. Levi grew up in Pineville, Missouri, with six brothers and sisters. His father, Scott King, was reportedly abusive. Levi had stated that his father often bounced around from job to job and didn't care too much for work. He grew up living without most things and claimed to have spent a third of his life living without electricity. The family lived in extreme poverty and as a result, he said his mother just gave up. Their home life was often very violent, but Levi says it mostly consisted of emotional abuse. The children grew up being raised around weapons of all kinds. Knives and guns were normal items found around the King home. In fact, they had a whole wall displayed with an arsenal of weapons. Levi King started drinking and doing drugs as early as age 11 taking pills, meth, and heroin by 13 or 14, and was apparently even encouraged by his father. But alcohol, drugs, and abuse were not the only dark things that seemed to be condoned in the household. Levi later recalls his father taking him out target shooting on many occasions, but it wasn't always the typical father-son bonding time one would expect. Instead of cans or bottles being used for shooting practice, they used their family pets. One incident in particular that really seemed to have impacted him includes a time involving his father and a dog Levi had brought home one day. Levi's dad reportedly tied the dog up to a tree and he shot it in front of Levi. He then rubbed his hand in the dog's blood and approached Levi, rubbing the dog's blood on his face, as if to say, this animal's blood is on your head. He recalls being upset at the time, but somehow went from being a witness to these horrible acts of cruelty towards animals to freely participating in them. Later, without any encouragement from his father, Levi chose to begin killing animals on his own. He remembers once taking his father's gun from his closet and repeatedly shooting his brother's cat. When he was later asked how that made him feel, Levi stated that he didn't know. In another interview, he said he found it a bit funny to see what was left of the cat. Early on, he showed signs of serious antisocial behavior. He was setting fires and continued killing animals. Levi's defense attorney described the environment Levi grew up in and said it's hard to imagine what it's really like 
until you actually walk around and get a feel for it. You'd have to see it to believe it. He described the home and said the first thing you notice is the filth. The insulation was black. There may not have been enough money for food or electricity, but there always seemed to be enough money for ammunition, drugs, and alcohol. We asked a certified counselor to give us his thoughts on the factors that may have shaped Levi King into the man he had become. My name is David Pruka. I'm a licensed professional counselor. And my background is I was the violent offender department chair uh, for a maximum security facility. And I'm a professor of undergraduate and graduate psychology. And I also have a private practice in Lone Tree and Castle Pines, Colorado. So a lot of people are curious about nature versus nurture when it comes to the development of the criminal personality and the personality in general. Freudian psychology thought that the majority of the person came about due to their childhood experiences. And a lot of those experiences they thought were between the child and the parent. So in Freudian psychology, one would look back into someone's childhood and say, this conflict with the parent manifested this problem. More recently, someone named Judith Harris, she wrote a book called The Nurture Assumption. And this was really a final hammer blow to Freudian psychology. What she basically discovered in looking at the research of twin studies was that 50% of somebody's personality was attributable to genes. 40% of somebody's personality was attributable to what she called the unshared environment. So that's any environment outside of the home that's not shared by siblings, that's not shared by the parents. And then she said somewhere between zero and 10% was due to parenting. So the idea is that Freudian psychoanalysis had it completely backwards. The parental relationship was much less significant than the child's experiences out in the world and much less significant than their genetic inheritance. It's also very difficult to identify what in the environment shapes somebody's personality. There's something called the Matthew effect, and it's named after a passage in the book of Matthew, actually, which says something to the effect, to he who has much, more will be given, and to he who has little, everything will be taken. And it's a pretty stern thing that's said in, in, in the book of Matthew. There's some statistics that demonstrate that this actually happens, that if you are born into a family where your parents are successful, you're inheriting 50% of their genetic material that might have something to do with their success. And you're also born into an environment where the school's probably better. You're born into an environment where you have access to tutors. You're born into expectations that you're going to go to college or at least educate yourself. And so a lot of times we look at the environment and we say, these are the environments that kids need to be in in order that they may be successful. But that's even tricky because the genes are in some part responsible for creating that environment or having access to that environment. We know there are some things that are associated with aggression when kids experience them, but we don't know to what degree genes are tangled up into the creating of that environment or the inability of leaving that environment. So one thing is poverty. 
that increases peer-directed violence, witnessing domestic violence, parental rejection. But then again, something like parental rejection, wouldn't you expect to find that the most difficult kids who come from some of the most difficult parents are going to have some sort of strain in the relationship? Also, harsh discipline and abuse. Children who have been abused prior to age 11 have twice the probability of being diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder 20 years later. But the strongest prediction in adult conviction is having a convicted parent by your 10th birthday. There's something genetic there. There's something environmental there. And it's very hard to know how to tease them out. So the research on psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder is that the motivational incentives are, again, backwards compared to your everyday person. If your everyday person is exposed to a video or an image of something violent or something grotesque, oftentimes the heart rate increases and what's called skin conductance, so the amount of sweat that is generated on your skin, and that's an indication of your how active your sympathetic nervous system is. And a normal person, you'll sweat, you'll feel your heartbeat rising. In somebody who's diagnosable, you'll oftentimes find the opposite reaction. So they'll be exposed to a violent image, a violent video, and their heart will still, and they don't have the same sweat response. So their sympathetic nervous system is responding differently. But I can't say that that's exactly what was happening in this case, but I can say that that's the research of those who have that diagnosis. And oftentimes people who take the lives of others report feeling some sense of calm and some sense of stability when they do so. Personality disorders in general are really hard to treat. And that's because they have underlying genetic qualities. Somebody who has antisocial personality disorder, they have a constellation of different biological traits. The first is a lack of deliberation and control. And that's often characterized with something called low conscientiousness when you look at personality. Oftentimes, they're also not as other regarding, they have diminished empathy. And so that's what's called low agreeableness in the literature. There's a lack of fear oftentimes. Combine those things together, it's very difficult to expect somebody to be pro-social. There's a strong genetic component to personality disorders. And I think clinicians experience that. It's very difficult to adjust what nature has insisted upon. According to former Gray County DA Lynn Schweitzer, the defense did a good job of painting Levi as a poor, pathetic, mistreated, sad little person. There's a whole lot of people out there in this world that have grown up in the same type of environment as Levi did, or even worse than him, and they don't go on killing sprees. Levi King kills people because he likes the smell of blood. He kills people because he likes the smell of gun smoke, and he doesn't care. During Levi's time in prison, he was asked if he was okay with it, 
He responded by saying that he was. Levi stated he liked the structure of prison and that the outside world was filled with too much chaos. He also said that he only felt some remorse for Robin because they seemed like a nice family, which was something he himself never had. More chillingly, he admitted he couldn't say he wouldn't kill again. Levi's father, Scott, overdosed on drugs in 2010. His mother remarried at some point, and she and Levi have not communicated or corresponded while he's been in prison. Levi King will serve the remainder of his life in prison. You might be wondering, what happened to Robin? The ten-year-old girl who so intuitively and bravely quietly waited for Levi to leave her home. Scared as she was, desperately wondering what happened to her family. She made the most difficult but probably smartest decision of her life and remained silent. Robin is now in her early 20s. She lived on and off with her biological father, an aunt, and other friends. She reports that she's still scared of the dark and has become very superstitious, sleeping with her bedroom door open because she always feels like someone could be standing in her doorway looking in. She has said that no place feels like home since that terrible day so many years ago. She continues on with the support of friends and family and has remained in close contact with the law enforcement officers that responded that day. But she refuses to let the brutal and reckless acts of one individual define her. He had already robbed her of the people she loved, and she decided she would not let him rob her of her life too. She has pursued her dream to attend college for nursing and has decided she'd like to take care of infants. She says she loves to help people and make sure they are taken care of. Robin's strength and courage as a 10-year-old was astonishing, but to see the choices she has made to move on in her life in a way that would honor her family is inspiring. We wish Robin all the joy and success that life has to offer. We also wish peace and healing for the families of the McCools and anyone else that has been impacted by these senseless and tragic murders.
I would like to thank the following new Patreons for their support. Nico W. Chen C. Wendy W. Jackie. Andrea G. Jen P. Danielle G. Shags. Solly S. And if she doesn't do enough for us already, Jordan Lemons. And now I would like to introduce to you two podcasts, Criminology this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morford. And we just want to let everybody know that our podcast, Criminology, is back for season two. We'll be covering the case of the East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer, responsible for over 50 rapes and a dozen murders throughout California. And we're going to get into every detail of this predator that terrorized California from 1976 to 1986. This predator needs to be identified. So check out Criminology. Criminology, the first episode of season two comes out on February 24th. You can find Criminology on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And whining about crime. Hi, I'm the crime whiner from Whining About Crime, a podcast that searches for the disconnect in true crime cases. The things that make a case more complicated than it seems on the surface. So please come join me at Whining About Crime. You'll know you found me when you hear me say, please don't leave me. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run